Welcome to the Vinyl Girls Podcast, where we specialize in malign sequels to beloved horror movies. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Vinyl Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're in the middle of our teen horror-focused season, so kind of mid-term right now. Currently going through the ups and downs of peak 90s teen horror, exploring the very beloved and the very questionable entries into this subgenre. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, as usual, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Girls UK. And as good millennials, we also have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash The Final Girls. If you enjoy this podcast, do consider contributing. We'd really appreciate it. But if you can't or don't want to, a little review over at Apple Podcast is just as good. So please do take a few seconds of your time to leave us a couple stars ideally five and maybe a little comment but speaking of teen horror we are living through a smorgasbord of scream related content with the new scream film out in cinemas now and i will be covering the new film in depth over on our sister podcast the hello sydney show so the new episode talking about the new scream will be out on monday so watch out for that But over here on The Final Girls, I'm joined by Ali Penelope to discuss two teen horror sequels to two different teen horror classics from the 70s. First up, we tackled a very funnily named and super funny Halloween sequel, Halloween H2O, which marks the return of Jamie Lee Curtis to the franchise, followed by the very reviled direct sequel to Carrie, confusingly titled The Rage Carrie 2. Aside from their overcomplicated titles, these films succeed and fail in different ways, and the rage really feels very, very specifically empathetic to conversations that are happening in the culture right now. So even if it's not the best horror film, I do encourage seeking it out. Please note, as per usual, all of our discussions are spoiler-heavy pretty much from the start. And with all of that said, please enjoy our takes on Halloween H2O 20 years later, and the rage carry too. Ali, welcome back onto the podcast and happy new year. Happy new year. I'm so excited to be back. So this is the first episode that I'm recording for this podcast in 2022. And it feels... I, I don't know, it feels somehow significant to be talking about Halloween H2O and The Rage Carry 2 on this on in January 2022. I mean, there's never a better time to revisit these films than fresh into the new year. And I, can I just say I'm honored to be the first guest of 2022. I'm I'm very I'm very honored that you're doing this with me and especially grateful um that you sat through the rage carry too because when we were exchanging messages about what fails you wanted to do um i i don't there was there was reluctance about this film well what I'll, i told you this before and i'll tell you again i honestly would have watched any film i would have watched paint dry on a wall if i was able to watch it with halloween h2o and have the opportunity to talk about that film because my love for halloween h2o 
I'm pretty sure I might be this film's biggest fan because I've never met anyone who loves it as much as me. So The Rage, Carrie 2, partially I'd just never seen it and partially its reputation kind of preceded it. So mm-hmm. if anything, I'm kind of glad that this gave me the opportunity to just break that ice and watch it. So we're going to be chatting about two, uh, I, I think it's fair to say somewhat malign sequels to very iconic films, or in the case of Halloween H2O, iconic franchises. So let's start with your, I'm guessing, one of your favorite films of all time. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, what can I What can I say about Halloween H2O? Well, first of all, I'm going to call it Halloween H2O, because isn't that, I mean, like, does anyone actually call it? Halloween age 20. Uh, well, I was wondering, as the credits came up in the film, I'm like, this is age 2 But then I was thinking, I mean, that's not what they intended. But that's how every time I've heard it referred to, it's age 2 I've never heard a single human being call it age 20. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, you know, that's, they, they chose to go with that. And mm-hmm. I feel like they just had to accept that that's what people were going to call it, whether that was their intention or not. I think it adds a certain level of charm <laughs> to it. It's memorable. It's definitely memorable. So to for anyone who's not revisited Halloween H2O in a while, can you summarize the plot very briefly for me? Absolutely. So it is 20 years after the events of the first film, and we've skipped some of the sequels in terms of uh, things that actually happened. And Laurie is now a school teacher at a very exclusive California private school. Well, she's a headmistress. She owns the school or is running the school. Mm-hmm. And she is still very traumatized from the events of that night with her brother. And she has a son. And she's sort of just worried about history repeating itself. And as Halloween night, 20 years later, sort of descends upon the school, you know, things happen. Michael returns. And uh, you don't know who's going to be alive by the end of the movie. As had happens with most Halloween movies. I... I, I think that we'd be remiss not to mention the fact that there is another subtitle to Halloween H2O. It is Halloween H2O 20 years later. This is true. Yes. I mean, I think that this franchise or this this film benefits from being right on that that 20 year mark. Mm-hmm. Like it because I don't know if we can just get into it. But in terms of like the Halloween franchise, you know, it, when it started in 78 with John Carpenter's film, I feel like it was very earnest. It was very low budget. It was somebody who was just trying to break into the industry and clearly didn't realize that this was going to become a phenomenon in oh, horror absolutely. and in a mainstream culture. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the time between 78 and then 98 when this film came out, I think about the sequels that then came afterwards. And as with many horror franchises – it got schlockier and it got the the quality was very uneven and the earnestness and the genuine scariness of the original film is sort of forgotten in time a little bit as these other these other films sort of almost tarnish it i guess for more of a mainstream audience anyway mm-hmm. and i feel like this film halloween h2o sort of knows how to I, I personally love that the tone is a bit goofy because I think it's this sort of knowing wink to all the films that have come before it, the the legacy of what these films have become. It it has this like level of self-awareness and goofiness that I just find really enjoyable. 
And mm-hmm. I, I think maybe some people find it a little bit too silly, but I, I, I'm all about it. So what is your, what is your own relationship with the Halloween franchise? I mean, I really, I'm a big John Carpenter fan mm-hmm. and I grew up watching the original Halloween and the second Halloween. For some reason, I think the first time I ever watched Halloween might have been like at a sleepover or with with a bunch of friends. And someone told me before we started watching the film that the premise of Michael Myers is that he wants to kill his entire family. And this was before I'd even started watching the first one. He just mm-hmm. friend and so annoyingly, I've sort of always had this knowledge of Laurie and Michael being brother and sister, despite the fact that obviously that's not canon in the first film. Uh, but I have a weird relationship because I've watched the first two many times. The third one I've actually watched several times and I really like, even though it's sort of that anomaly because Michael isn't part of the formula. Mm-hmm. But I had not watched four, five, and six until relatively recently because I'd always heard <laughs> really terrible things about them. And I have to say I was fully along for the ride with especially four and five because I'm just so on board with what Donald Pleasance is doing in those movies. <laughs> He's just, he's just like, he doesn't even know the cameras are rolling. Like, he's just acting absolutely insane. And his performance is so, like, joyful to watch because he's just screaming at people. And, like, he just gets more and more manic as the films progress. So the only thing I'll say about 1998's film is that it it suffers from lack of pleasance. But uh, I think LL Cool J makes up for that. But we'll come to that later. Um, but... Bold. <laughs> and then I'd never watched uh, the one after this, Resurrection, because I had heard, again, like absolutely terrible things. But I recently watched it, and hot take, I think Resurrection is a better film than both of the David Gordon Green films. Holy, what? I know. I, I feel like people are really going to hate me when they listen to this episode, because... I am stumped. I, well, I I hate what they do to Laurie in Resurrection, but David Gordon Green's films didn't do anything for me, especially the second one, which I thought was particularly stinky. Um, A lot of people have said that about Halloween Kills, and and I'll say what I I kind of have said about it a lot. I mean, it it didn't fully work, but I kind of see it as the two towers of the trilogy so it makes no sense without a beginning and an ending so it really really is a film that genuinely does not work without the 2018 halloween and it probably will work when halloween ends comes out this year but on its own i don't think it has it doesn't stand on its own two feet it will i think it only works as filler for Mm. the previous movie so in a way that's that's a failed movie yeah but I, I'm I'm choosing to like look at it with a slightly optimistic point of view because I'm like I can see that you're literally just a connective tissue between the beginning, which was Halloween 2018, and the end, which will be Halloween Ends. That's very generous of you, Anna. It is very generous. <laughs> I'm being very optimistic about the new one, about the next I, one. My my devil's advocate for that would be why even bother making the second one then? And my but- and my very cynical answer to that is like money. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's, you know, the thing about, like, the big, the big bad uh, monsters that are franchised now, the Michaels, the Freddies, Mm -hmm. the Jasons, it's like, 
they're so far removed from what they initially were that it I mean, A, it begs the question, like, why continue to make them? But then, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's like, it's fun. It's familiar. It's fun. It makes money. Um, well, I, what, it, what I do find very curious, and I think this is perhaps like too big of a conversation, but is why aren't we getting new monsters, right? Because Michael Myers is a monster of the 70s. Freddy Krueger is a monster of the 80s. So is uh, Jason. Although, you know, why don't we get a Pamela Voorhees version is what I'm uh, is what I'm going to scream about. It's like, why? Where's the Pamela Voorhees franchise is what I fucking want. But <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but like, I, I genuinely like there's very few um, sort of 21st century horror franchises that I can say, you know, oh, these are monsters that were created in our time. I guess Slenderman would be a perfect example because mm. it's a creature born from the internet, but also all the big screen, the attempts to making a Slenderman movie were really shit, so. Yeah. Well, to that point, what I would say is when I think about, it is a shame that no kind of iconic villains have really sprung up in the last decade or two, but I think that horror in general has kind of shifted and mm-hmm. I feel like, well, horror is having a renaissance, as we all know, mm-hmm. but it's become more cerebral. It's become more art house. It's become more uh, psychological. I'm thinking of the Ariasters. I'm thinking of, you know, like even like Dr. Sleep being kind of cerebral and, and about internal fears being externalized. And... I, maybe that's just a reflection of where horror is at right now, that mm-hmm. the only films we're getting that feature big baddies are just, you know, reboots or sequels to existing ones. And mm-hmm. I would say it's all cyclical. So we'll probably get a new – we'll get Pamela finally in another <laughs> 10 years because I feel like it all will come around and appetites will change because to kind of bring this back to Halloween H2O, mm-hmm. I, I think – you know, I watched Hereditary, I watched Midsummer. I watched St. Maud. They're amazing films. I, you know, genuinely well-crafted, very, not enjoyable to watch, but very um, engaging to watch, very just an experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm only going to watch those movies once or twice because they're so intense and they're not, they don't have a rewatchability or even like an enjoyability in the same way that for me, Halloween H2O does. I've watched mm-hmm. this film a dozen times and I'll watch it a dozen more because it 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 just scratches that itch and it can be casual viewing, it can be nostalgia, but it can also, it's very digestible in a way that a lot of great horror that's being made today is more experiential mm-hmm. and really can't just be casually consumed. So what makes it so, so fun to watch? I mean, you know, you've kind of, you've, been really fusive in your love for this film <laughs> and and it's probably the halloween that i've maybe perhaps because i do prefer personally the sometimes the more intense horror mm. um but this one has so i haven't rewatched really it in in years and it did feel it felt so much more like a teen slasher that was picking up from the the school of scream so to speak yeah versus a halloween film so like what what makes it so enjoyable for you well, when I was on the pod last, I did say that 90s teen horror is is one of my f- two favorite subgenres along with like I love a good haunted house. Mm-hmm. Um 
so I think the fact that it really does feel like it takes a leaf, you know, a leaf out of Scream's book, it, it doesn't bother me because I kind of want that. I think that there's just so many elements here that I find fun. I like that it's a fresh location. I like mm-hmm. that we're not in Haddonfield. I mean, my God. Haddonfield, it's just like it's a it's a it's like stop beating that dead horse because it's just I I get tired of that location. So I'm like, eh, let's film it in California. Why not? The private school is a fun setting. It also can play into the the teen element because there can be a cast of teens. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, the other thing to note is like this is, you know, Jamie Lee's big return to the role. It is. And I think that she gives just a killer performance here. And it's again, it feels somewhat like a like a kind of knowing parody because she's almost playing it a little too and a t- little too much. Hmm. But I also think that there's still hints of like the trauma that she's experiencing and the grief that she's experiencing, how that still hangs heavy over her life. And those, those themes still come through, even if the overall tone of the film is a bit lighter. Um, I often, I mean, at least once a week, I think about the scene where she just chugs a glass of wine um, (laughs) because it, I honestly, I, I just can't tell you how much I think about that scene. It's, (laughs) it's so great. Uh, I think the I think the cast is really fun. You've got like teen royalty with yes, you do Josh Hartnett and Michelle Williams, and I think the supporting teenagers are great as well. I love this like weird subplot with LL Cool J like writing his romance <laughs> novels with his wife. Like it's just Michael Myers is just, him showing up at all is just a bonus because mm-hmm. already everything else around it, all the set pieces for me, are so fun. I love the opening with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think that's like a great cold open. And again, like going back to Donald Pleasance, like I love that there's just like this element of him still in the franchise because Mm -hmm. to be honest, he's been, he breathed more life into that franchise in a way than like Jamie Lee did. Like he cared about those films and continued with those films when they were like literally in the ditch of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of of popular opinion. So it's the whole package, Anna. I... I can't pinpoint it down to just one thing. So let's go bit by bit. Let's start with that opening scene, which I think is a very, it's quite a beautiful farewell to Donald Pleasance because it's this, this, these pans of his house and, and we just get enough to know that he's gone, but he continued to be obsessed with Michael Myers and this case until his, the, the last breath. And we get this amazing, um, cold open kill with Joseph Gordon Levitt. In in his nineteen ninety eight, good boy goodness. I know. I what know. a little pumpkin! I just he's... love him. <laughs> oh yeah, he's so great because he's so like cocky and uh, he's like looking for the beers in the fridge and stealing the beers, and it's just like it feels really authentic. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, you don't spend it. It's like I don't mind when he dies. Like again, and a lot. I didn't feel like. I was like, oh, no, he's dead. It's like you kind of are rooting for him to die a little bit because you know it's coming and you're kind of excited to get to the meat and potatoes of the film. So that whole whole opening just works so well for me. I love it. And the meat and potato of the film is really the return of Laurie Strode. Yes. So 
Let's talk about where she is. And I guess it's really, it's really curious to go back to this film because now we have an alternative version of a, of an older Lori, which kind of erases this, this from the chronology of Halloween, this film. Um, but this is the first, this is the first time we see a fully grown up kind of readjusted Laurie Strode who has built a whole new life for herself and has a son and has a life that is not fully defined by Michael Myers. So what do you make of of her 20 years after the events of Halloween and of Jamie Lee Curtis's return to the franchise? Yeah, well, it's it's, it's hard now to talk about it, as you say, because there is now this kind of alternate history version of Laurie who is not related to Michael, who never left Haddonfield. Well, I guess she did leave Haddonfield, but she's still kind of in that space in Haddonfield. And I I do like – one thing I will say about the David Gordon Green films is that I like the kind of matriarchal feel of like the, the daughter and then the granddaughter. Mm-hmm. But in the case of this film, I think that this was a great way to reintroduce the character because she's out of Haddonfield. She's – Clearly, st- I mean, the first time we see her, she's screaming and waking up from a terrible nightmare. So she's clearly still very, very traumatized by her experience. But I think that that's very relatable because it's like she has suffered something so horrific that, of course, she's going to continue to carry it around with her. But she still tried to build this life for herself. And I think the most interesting thing in this film for me is. Uh, in terms of like the themes and the dynamics are just this idea of like familial grief and familial trauma that I guess, again, is explored in David Gordon Green's films as well, but is something that is very relatable. I think we all have that to some extent within our family dynamics. The relationship between her and her son is one where it's like he doesn't want to be defined by her trauma and she's having a really hard time knowing that that's that's how it should be, but really being able to let go and Mm -hmm. let him mature and come into his own. And I just, I think that the fears also, it's like, I'm sure it's very relatable for any parent, the idea of your child reaching uh, adulthood and going off into the world. And so it's, it's, you know, the same scenario, but then there's just a a mass killer thrown into the mix as well. So I I just, I, I also do love about her that she, I mean, the fact that she's a private headmistress at some swanky school. I mean, she did well for herself, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Go Lori. Yeah. So I'm like, she's clearly kind of not got her shit together under the surface, but she's holding that she's holding it together with some chicken wire and a smile. So And a glass of dry white. And a, a large glass of dry white. I think this I mean, we need to talk about the and Josh Hart did in this in this film also points out quite cruelly i think that his mother's a, a high functioning alcoholic which to be fair she really is but she this really is <laughs> the moment in the bar in the middle of the day where Lori just kind of goes full karen and <laughs> is really rude to the waiter and chugs a whole ass glass of white wine i mean it is it's halloween it's those old wounds are opening back up Girl's got to get through the day. And oh my, and then she drives. Uh, Well, okay, that's, I don't advocate that, but I, yeah, it's not good. It's not good at all. But also, like, I feel like we could do a whole hour just on the way that Jamie Lee chugs that glass of white. Okay, can I also just like backpedal here and just say, 
big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. Like, I mean, same. I would, I would die for her. I love Literally. her so much. Um, so I mean, she I, made I me have... blush. I never blush. <laughs> I oh yeah, because you got to speak with her, didn't you? Listen, I'm not over it yet. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so I like the thing is, I I do have a hard time separating. Jamie Lee Curtis as a persona versus this character of Laurie because I do think there's a lot of Jamie Lee in this performance mm-hmm. just like being I mean she's talked about her own substance abuse problems as well and I feel mm-hmm. like you know I'm sure that she brought that into the performance but it is like I don't know she just is it's funny obviously we talk about this wine chucking scene and it is like iconic and funny but it's also horrible that she's driven to do that as mm-hmm. a character because she's just so traumatized by the events of what happened in 1978. I think there's also a lot of, because Jamie Lee Curtis is such a good comedic actress. She is. And and what's funny is I've always been a really big fan of hers, but outside of the Halloween movie. So my the first time I experienced Jamie Lee Curtis on the screen was in Trading Places. So I got, and then A Fish Called Wanda. Like yeah. I got to know her as an actress through her comedy stuff. And yeah. then her horror work. Um, as I grew, as I kind of discovered John Carpenter in the Halloween franchise. So like her comedic timing in this is really seeping through. Like she's, she's so good, um, in kind of in comedic roles. And I think this is probably the one Halloween where those two live together a little bit more because when she's funny, she's real fucking funny. Yes. Yes. And I mean, let's also not forget her iconic performance in Freaky Friday. Oh, obviously. Never forget. (laughs) I feel like it's kind of indicative of where she was in her career at this point as well, because she had become known as a comedic actress. She'd Mm -hmm. finally kind of broken out of that scream queen queen role a bit. Mm. And she, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how willing she was to come back to this film, but I like that she kind of, it seems that she kind of did it on her own terms in terms of the performance that Mm -hmm. she gave having this element. Whereas now I feel like she's almost like she's transcended whatever people, whatever boxes people might have put in mm-hmm. her in, in terms of categorizing what kind of films she can be in. And so now I feel like she's just having fun and yeah. she's just choosing projects and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But in 1998, I feel like people might have, she might have been concerned about traveling back into a horror space and what people might have thought about that. So I think. It's a completely different performance than what she gave in 1978, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that that's just a reflection of where Jamie Lee Curtis was in her career as well. I, I I really feel that as well, and I know that I was reading a little bit about the the behind the scenes stuff, and she did really want to come back, but she wanted Carpenter to come back as well. She wanted mm-hmm. it to be like a whole reuniting of the gang, and apparently he he just wanted too much money. They and he the the company just would not give him the deal that he wanted he wanted a huge fee to come back and direct mm. and you know what full respect to john carpenter it's like yeah get, fucking get your coin man you're john carpenter good for you um like <laughs> you don't that would be a huge event um you know to reunite jamie lee and and carpenter in this this franchise that they that they created i do i do agree with you i feel like it's inevitable to compare the lori and the jamie lee of halloween 2018 with this mm. one because they are they do mark the big return of her to the franchise and in halloween 2018 she is also a producer so she's like a key a kind of a key guardian of the franchise but a key creative force like you know that david gordon great is not going to be like 
hey, Jamie Lee, we're going to make you do this. It's like, no, you're fucking not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not doing anything that Jamie Lee's not doing anything Jamie Lee doesn't want to do. Yes. She's been a huge spokesperson for the new films and huge. I, yeah. I, again, I, it's, it's hard to say because I wasn't like, I wasn't really present <laughs> when she was doing press for 1998. Like, I don't mm. know what the atmosphere was like around her supporting that film, but. It, I know that I've just heard her talk so much about how emotionally attached she is to the David Gordon Green project mm-hmm. and her belief in him and the story he was trying to tell. So mm-hmm. I, it's hard it's hard to know in comparison how she felt about H2O. I mean, yeah. tonally, they're such different films. Oh, totally. So I, it's, it's fun to just watch her reinvent herself so many times mm-hmm. because – you know the the I would love to see the Laurie of H two O and the Laurie of twenty eighteen meet face to face. Like I'd be so curious to see like what commonalities they would have and what differences they would like where they would disagree on things. Listen, uh, you're talking about a Halloween multiverse, and we both know oh. that that will inevitably happen. Oh yeah, you're so right. <laughs> you're so right. We're in a post Spider Man world now. Yes. So that's we we kind of talked a lot about the the old um that not the old but like the original um totems of the Halloween franchise Donald Pleasance you know his presence is felt even though he's not in the film obviously and the film is dedicated to him and Jamie Lee but let's talk about the the nineties teen royalty that's in yes. this film and obviously there's Josh Hartnett with his it, that haircut again. <laughs> Yes, and Michelle Williams. Baby this is Michelle like her Williams. first film role too. I mean, I know she was in Dawson's, <gasps> mm. but I think this is her like debut film role, and she's just like, I mean, the the camera just loves her. Mm-hmm. She's just so watchable. She's so effortless and effervescent on screen. Um, I think that again, the 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 kids in this are really fun, and I love the idea that it's this school setting mm-hmm. because it feels like. It kind of comes back to the heart of what the original film was about, which is like, you know, kids coming up to the brink of maturity around adulthood and feeling invincible uh, and then kind of this cold awakening that you're not invincible <laughs> and mm-hmm. that there there are dangers out there in the world. And um, I feel like this film just explores that really well. I love uh, – I also just love like – it's a shame that some of the characters don't get enough screen time. That's that's another thing about this film. Sorry to to derail, but mm-hmm. this film. My only criticism is that I think it's too short. It is. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, no, because it's it's a short movie. It's like it's like eighty minutes. Good like, job. Good you know, job. Like Halloween H two O. Like they, but I'm like let's let's make it another thirty minutes longer, <laughs> and like just do some fun set piece scenes. You know, like. I just wanted more like teen shenanigans. And I didn't we didn't get that. Like I love the dynamic between the two friends mm-hmm. where they're like she's like I hope you don't mind if I get really fat when I get older cuz we're just going to eat everything. He's like, "Oh, I love that about you." And it's like they're just like they're just they have these this great dynamic between the two of them. I was I'm genuinely gutted when they both die. Um and I don't know, they're nice foils to Michelle Williams and Josh Hartnett's characters as well. Um, it's yeah, it's just really good. 
I mean, let's the teenagers in this. Is it me or do is it maybe because I'm used to um, we live in a post euphoria world now where I'm just <laughs> expecting teenagers to be, you know, um, I mean, if we didn't invent this, I'm thinking also of like the doom generation and stuff. But like these teenagers just want to have snacks and hang out and watch movies in candlelight and kind of dance forehead to forehead and be really chaste and pure. Like what? What did the what in the hell are these teenagers? Like, it's, it's what so is wholesome. going on? It's so wholesome. I mean, I I think part of that, Anna, is just the rating needed to be PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, is it a PG-13 rated film? It might be. I feel check? like that might be part of it because it's not very gory either. Um, so maybe that's partially it. But I also just think... It was rated R. It was. Well, mm-hmm. as a soft R because there's hardly any gore. Just, and, a, as just say, says R for vi- for terror, violence, gore, and strong language. Okay. Well, it's like a strong PG-13 in my mind. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I feel like they needed to do that to an extent because they needed to have the two lead teenagers like be worthy of surviving Michael's wrath. Mm-hmm. Although saying that, well, the the two others they talk about sex, but it's like there's never any kind of sexual explicit like explicitness mm-hmm. in in the film. It is very tame now that you, now I've never really thought about just how tame it is until you said it. But I'm not angry with it. I, I don't know me either. I love that they're they're essentially just they just want some time alone. Mm. I think I think it's one of the things that kind of makes it on the teen aspect makes it stand out from other teen horror movies of the time, which were, you know, like uh, uh, sex is always a part of teen horror in general. But here it really isn't their goal. It really isn't in conversation that much. And and it kind of makes it stand out from other teen horror where, you know, the, the even the image of the final girl or this idea of you know the rule of scream of you you can't have sex mm-hmm. because then you'll surely die it's not even part of the equation at all yeah and i think partially that's that's probably because the film the film really at the end of the day is like a vehicle for the return of lori mm-hmm. like it is a 90s teen horror film and they've they've marketed it towards that audience and and lent into story elements that like will make it accessible to that audience but in a way it's not really a 90s teen horror film because it is very much focused on the grand return of laurie strode to the halloween franchise and i feel like she gets more screen time than all the teens combined Mm -hmm. so i like if if it had been a different movie and it would have just been like this next installment in the franchise is is laurie's son at boarding school and his mother died and so laurie's not part of the equation like i feel like it might have had more of those teen elements that we're familiar with from mm. similar films. And let's talk about the, not just the return of Lori, which we've talked about, but also the confrontation of Lori and Michael Myers in this film. And I do echo your sentiment of Michael kind of being a, a, a fun add-on, but not really the point of this Halloween. But I have to say, like, when they finally do come face-to-face, and it's that really very used shot of Laurie looking at Michael through yeah. this little round hole in a door is a it's a great scene. Yeah, it's a great moment. I think I mean it's like as as we said, like this film feels like it's 
Laurie is the the centerpiece, but also like Laurie and Michael are the centerpiece. And I think, again, what differentiates this maybe from the 2018 is she, it's it's still the, the idea that she's related to him, that this is her brother. And she is traumatized by that idea of him also being related to her. Maybe there's, I, I get the impression there's something along the lines of like, there's a sickness in the, like the idea that there's evil kind of in the family blood almost that, I mean, I think that's probably in a way, I mean, they didn't explore this in the film, but perhaps why they chose to have Laurie have a son rather than a daughter. Like the idea, mm-hmm. could, are we going to make him the next Michael Myers or something? Um, But I'm thinking about that moment that you described as well as the very end of the film where she actually shows some compassion for Michael and she, she genuinely experiences grief over the fact that she has to, she it's come to this that she has to kill her brother and that this is the reality of the situation i think that dynamic is is very interesting and uh hadn't really been explored in any previous halloween films yeah absolutely and it's definitely again something that will that will be explored so much more in the new iteration of of Laurie in the new films, but in a radically much more violent approach. And that sort of goes back to my earlier point about mm-hmm. uh, horror, the state of horror today and almost like the digestibility and rewatchability of horror. Like the the 2018 Halloween, which I, I like more than Halloween Kills. I probably still wouldn't rewatch it nearly as much as I'd rewatch Halloween H2O because it's not nearly as fun. <laughs> the 2018 Halloween is hard to watch because it's just someone who's really genuinely like traumatized. Like the scene where she's like out in the street and she's screaming in 2018 is just it's it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas this film for all of the grief and trauma that is on screen in in Laurie Strode's character, it's still a lighthearted film. And listen, again, this is personal taste, you know, but I, when I want to throw in a horror film, you know, if I'm casually watching something, this one's always going to come over one that's grittier and rawer and more brutal. Mm. And I mean, there's nothing that makes this one more lighthearted than uh, the two expanded cameos that I really appreciated this film are obviously Janet Leigh, Jamie Lee's real life mom, and also a scream queen in her own right from her role in Psycho. Glorious, glorious interactions between the two of them. I love everything about that moment, too. And again, it's like some people would say, oh, that's just sort of this. That's just too excessive. That's too indulgent to have that moment. And I'm like, bring it on. I love that kind of stuff. And I love like the use of the psycho theme mm-hmm. in that scene. And she's got the original car. Yeah. And, you know, the lines are very wink, wink, nudge, nudge mm-hmm. in that scene. But it's like, you know, Janet Lee's no longer with us. So we don't have the opportunity to create those kind of moments anymore. And it's just... I think it's just sort of it's sort of beautiful being able to have that. I think it's the sort of thing that doesn't take away from casual viewers. So anyone who doesn't recognize those elements just won't think of it twice. They'd be like, oh, yeah, it's just this annoying um, administrator at the school. <laughs> but someone who does, it becomes a really cute wink, a, a series of very cute winks, I think. Yes, yes, definitely. And then, you know, you've mentioned him before, but 
I feel like we need to dedicate some time to LL Cool J and his oh, subplot. Yes. Yes. I love LL Cool J in this movie. I, I feel like, again, this is very indicative of like late 90s teen horror. Like you always have some character that's a bit of comic relief. I know mm-hmm. last time we talked about the very uh, miscast role of Jack Black and I know what you did last summer. Yeah. I still know what you did last summer. Um, LL Cool J is far superior to, to Jack Black in that film. Um, he just steals the screen from me. He's so fun. Him and, unfortunately, his wife who remains off off screen. It's just a disembodied voice. But, like, I – again, some people would say, like, the levity of his character ruins the film. I'm like – more of this, please. <laughs> I, I love it. I just, I think it, I think about this film as being a popcorn movie that was meant for teens to go see it on a Friday night. And having this element just makes it so much more watchable for them. So this this film wasn't meant to, it, it's like, I guess they were in a, in a way trying to appease fans of the 78 film who would have been excited about the return of Laurie Strode. But it was also trying to appeal to the youth of the era and i see no issue with the inclusion of l cool j to to do that and also he is you know who he reminded me of in this movie it's allison janney's uh, guidance counselor in 10 things i hate about you yes that's so funny that you say i mean another george joseph gordon love it uh, yeah production but also like um, that kind of like sort of subplot that you just get enough of that you kind of want more, but you know that any more would be excessive and would kind of ruin the fun of it and breaks attention. And it's just fun when he keeps popping up occasionally after scenes and you're like, oh yeah, how are you doing? How are you doing with your story? Yes. And also, I'm so glad he survives. Yes. Because, so, you know, you think he's down, you think he's down, but then he comes back at the end. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to write this thing. I know exactly what I'm going to do now. It's just great. I love his little, he has, I mean, honestly, he has more character development than like half the, half the characters in this film (laughs) because he genuinely has an arc. (laughs) So before we move on to the rage carry two, is there anything about Halloween H2O that you wanted to, to bring up? I feel like I need to have this public service announcement mm-hmm. to to all the haters. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just don't understand the lukewarm reception to this. I've genuinely never met another person in real life who has, like, overwhelmingly positive things to say about this movie. I've, I always, I, I feel like if I look online, the, re- the reviews are, like, scathing. And I just don't get the hate. I just, I'm like, this movie is such a joyride from start to finish. And I think if you just accept it for what it is, then you can then you can really have a good time. I I just I want people to love it as much as me because it's brought me so much joy. <laughs> I'm so happy that you love it so much. I love it when people love under um underappreciated movies. Whether they're good or bad is kind of be besides the point. Yes. Yes. So let's move on to a kind of a bummer of a movie compared to this one. <laughs> not as fun. No. For, I think not that many people have seen The Rage Carry 2, which again, the title, I guess the, another unifying factor between these two sequels is that the title is very weird. Like, why would you call it The Rage? I mean, I know why, but it's 
if it was the franchise, it would be called Carrie 2, The Rage. But well, it's the other way around. I will say, I did not realize until I actually went to watch the film mm -hmm. that it wasn't called Carrie 2, The Rage. <laughs> I, again, I kind of had like danced around ever watching this film because mm -hmm. of its reputation. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I did, I knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely thought that the title was Carrie to the Rage, which makes, as you say, makes so much more sense. Um, I feel like well, we could probably get into it, but I feel like this film really suffers from being part of the Carrie franchise rather than just like its own unique premise. I agree. So let's, before we really get into it, can you, can you summarize the plot of the Rage Carrie 2 for me? Oh, I don't know if I can, but I'll try. <laughs> so we pick up with a character named Rachel who has is living with foster parents because her mother believed that she was possessed by the devil and is now locked up in an asylum. And Rachel is a bit of a grungy kind of uh, in the fringes teen. She loves her dog. And she's got a best friend who, like, they're best buddies for life. And then her best friend commits suicide. And the film sort of goes from there as she is exploring her own feelings about the suicide. But also there's a horrible group of teen boys, despicable, horrible boys, who are doing this quote-unquote game where they're trying to sleep with as many girls in the school as possible and awarding a point system to each respective girl. And it turns out her friend who committed suicide was part of this game, and it was what ultimately caused her to jump off the roof of the school. Yeah. So you can kind of imagine where it goes towards the end. It very much follows the, the Carrie formula in that Rachel ultimately seeks her revenge against these horrible boys who committed so many atrocities against the teenage girls of the school. That's a good summary. That's a I, good I, summary. Whenever you ask me to do the summaries, Anna, I'm like, my heart starts beating faster because I'm just, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> Listen, I'm the same. It's really difficult to summarize a film in like 30 seconds. We try, yeah. we've, been, we've been doing that over on the Scream podcast on Hello, Sydney. And the any time that I've had to do it, like my heart starts beating 120 beats per minute. <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about kind of the, um, how does this film fit with Carrie, the 1976 Brian De Palma classic? Oh, how does it fit? It is, well, there's a lot of connections because uh, it reminded me of Grease 2. <laughs> okay. Well, no, because there's the one returning character. Mm-hmm. Sue Snell. Yes. There's the one returning character of Sue Snell who was the one girl to be nice to Carrie in the original film and is, at the end of the film, we see that she's still very much suffering from the trauma of the events of the end of the film and uh, what happened to Carrie. So it turns out that she has grown up and she is now a school guidance counselor at the school that Rachel goes to, which I think is very fitting. Like if they were going to bring anybody back, that feels very appropriate. The idea that she's sort of redeeming what happened with Carrie by helping other young people makes sense for that character. 
Um, but that's sort of like the the connective tissue between the original film and this one. And I guess we can even go into kind of spoiler territory, but over the course of the film, you find out that Rachel is Carrie's half-sibling, which completely unnecessary, I think. Just, that felt like just ap- piss-poor writing to me. Um, I, I think those two things are the same, but then also really in the artistic execution of the film, it uses a lot of... Uh, it, it uses a lot of archive footage from Brian De Palma's film. Mm-hmm. Mm, successfully, I don't really think so. I felt like it felt really, it felt very juxtaposed against the tonality of this film, which feels very grungy and 90s. And Brian De Palma's film feels kind of like, well, very 70s, but also kind of timeless and like, like effervescent and like just tonally they feel like very different films like stylistically they're remarkably different films so using the archive footage in this one was very strange hmm. i i don't know your thoughts on like well, the connection between the two so i i feel like there's so i came to this film because i'm a big fan of cat cheese poison ivy um so she's the she's the director she's made kind of a sort of expectation-y horror horror adjacent films for her for her entire career and she directed this but i always sort of have it in my mind as as two films that are merged into one so on the one hand there's this really interesting flawed film about kind of um toxic bro culture and this like the main plot being these these jocks who are who are playing a game by sleeping with as many girls as possible and raiding them, um, which is very heavily takes from a real life um, sex scandal that happened in the early nineties um, with a with a group of high school jocks who were charged with I think uh, seven or eight counts of statutory rape um, and and other charges based around how they were this game that they were playing with the girls in a high school. So that feels very, I mean, it's a bummer, but it's also like, oh, this is a film from 1999 who is kind of prioritizing or addressing kind of how girls' experiences are deprioritized in these settings, which is not just a complete opposite tonal vibe from a lot of the the teen horror of this time. Um, And at the same time, the, the kind of the connection with Carrie feels very shoehorned, both visually and narrative wise. And so I'm like, okay, I like the rage, the film, the rage. I'm not a fan of the Carrie 2 side of it all. Because the connection with, you know, the telekinetic powers being a, a genetic thing that comes from a both Carrie and Rachel's father. They share the same father in the film. A man called Ralph White. Ralph, <laughs> a man called Ralph gave birth to... Carrie White, are you joking? That's disrespectful. <laughs> I find that very disrespectful. That is a bad name for a dude who has like telekinetic genetic ab- abilities. But like all of that feels very shoehorned to me. And also, I'm just like, I don't, I don't need them to be connected. It could just be another, you know, another mistreated, sort of bullied girl who has powers that are tied into her emotions. And then Sue Snell has to deal with that and deal with herself. But connecting the two Hmm. it i think it's it's trying to give i think it's aiming for like a franchise approach 
that is we're now very familiar with, but perhaps weren't as much in the in this period in the nineties. And why? I'm just why why franchise carry? Yeah. Yeah, I love the way you described you like the rage, but you don't like Carrie too. I agree completely. I think that the 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 narrative of the bro culture stuff, I was genuinely blown away by that being explored on screen in 1999. Because as you say, it doesn't really feel like something you would explore as much. The, the only thing I can think that felt comparable was like had elements of like the craft in it because yeah. the craft does do that a bit as well. But I guess to be honest, if I would think about another 90s teen horror film that felt similar, the craft would be the most, the closest comparison I could think of. But the, I hated the genetic thing. I hated Mm -hmm. it. It felt like George Lucas trying to explore like why midichlorians make the force work. It's like, (laughs) we don't care. We don't care. We don't need this sort of granularity of understanding. We, it, we as viewers accept that that's just the reality. We accept that telekinesis works. We don't need to have this added history. Mm. And I, it really suffers from that because Rachel could be a really interesting character completely separate from all of the Carrie stuff. And it was – I even just felt like it was poorly executed because, you know, the idea that her mother – knew that she had these problems or not sorry her mother knew that she had these powers Mm -hmm. and was then locked up for it so you think oh the mother wasn't crazy she she just she really knew that she had telekinesis but then it turns out the mother really is schizophrenic yeah the whole the whole mother supplement by the way can we just point out i don't know if you're a succession fan but the mothering in the rage carry 2 is played by j smith cameron I've never watched the session. Everybody tells me to. And um, as a massive succession head, when her name popped up, I was like, oh, wait, was she here? And then she's the first thing we see on screen. And I was so happy to see her. Like, obviously, this role is way beneath her talents. But <laughs> Yeah, I'd seen the actress before. I'm sure I've seen her in other things. But, um, oh, man, this was a stinky role. Mm. Yeah, there's not the, the mother subplot. Because the mother character is so important in in Carrie, I feel like yeah. it's another way of trying to shoehorn Carrie-ness into this film. Like we don't know, we do, we really don't need that. You know, the the beginning scene is like fine, sure. Then you know, Rachel doesn't have a mom, she doesn't have a dad, she lives with foster parents. The other thing as well is like Rachel seems pretty fairly like well adjusted like she's an she's an old girl in the 90s she loves nine inch nails you know yes she, i loved her movie po- like all of her i loved yeah. all of her music posters on the walls i was like yes girl yeah she's got a personality she's got a friend she stands up for herself she doesn't she like stays out of trouble like rachel is doing fine her foster parents are seem like kind of a little a little bit dickish maybe but not bad people she's got a nice big room and and they seem very nice maybe like not super loving but you know nothing compared to the abuse that carrie was going through so i'm a bit like okay so this is just like a a, a nice ulti angsty teenage girl you know but she's got her head on her shoulders good for her and then the whole thing is about her friend um by the way played by Mina Savari. also the cast in this film is yes. like it's like b-list 90s teen celebrities i love it 
Well, can I just say very quickly on that point, like the idea that everyone thought that Menasavari's character was like ugly or they use that, what was it that they said? Like she's a coyote or something. Mm-hmm. I was like, has no one seen American Beauty in this film? <laughs> like I mean, the idea that she's considered homely is just absurd. Like very mis- – like I was like, well, you miscast that because she's a stunningly beautiful girl. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's jo- – the jocks here are, are truly really, really gross. They are like disgusting people. Um, but also, I mean, the scene when Jesse, who's a kind of our – becomes a love interest of Rachel – played by Jason London, is having sex with a girl, and they're just in a car parked opposite the car where he's having sex with this girl, and yeah. cheering on. Yeah, well, that's why, like, n- it's it's a shame, because there was elements of this film that almost worked for me, and then they would mess it up. And I think the character of, the character that, uh, is it, sorry, the character Je- Jesse? Yeah. Um, with the character of Jesse, he is I, I can't believe that he actually had sex with her in that that first scene with that he had sex with the girl in the car with the guys watching because it felt like it was the antithesis of all of the other all of his other behavior within the film like i was like he didn't seem like he was as broy as the rest of them so why is he partaking in the game mm. only to then go and create something really genuine with rachel it, mm-hmm. it was it was very strange um so just very well, uneven. Um, it is uneven. I think that's the right word. But I, I, I guess it is that the, the learning curve that he had to go through. Um, you know, he he's kind of a jock, but he's not. He's a good jock. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is that trope. You know, it's the jock who falls who falls for the old gothy girl and and genuinely falls for her. This is basically like it's all that. Uh, she's all that, but lesser than (laughs) yeah but like with a really different ending yeah yeah it mostly is a teen drama until the ending so shall we talk about the the absolute ott the the explosive ending that we get treated to yeah i mean obviously this is again the comparison with carrie because in carrie that scene is it's film history it's so iconic it's incredibly well shot. It's it's horrific. And so, of course, they had to do something comparable for this film in order to feel like they were doing justice to the fact that they were slapping the Carrie name on it. And I have to say that although it was not stylistically done in the way that Brian De Palma did his scene, <laughs> you know, with the split screens and the long shots and I mean, that scene is just a work of art. Mm-hmm. I I still really enjoyed the finale of the rage. I think I, the middle part just got a little. It felt a little too long. The film. I don't know how long it was. Maybe it was like actually quite short, but it felt longer. And I was kind of just. I reached a point where I was like, okay, I'm ready for her to snap. And I love the the broy teen party just ripped to shreds, burn it all to the ground ending. I thought it was delicious. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I don't think it makes any sense at all, but I do like, I did like the visual of Rachel's tattoo sort of throbbing and coming to life and then expanding oh, yes. the thorns onto her onto the rest of her skin and her face. I'm like, you know what? It's a cool visual. I don't understand what it means, but sure. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, the one, the one thing I did know about this film was that image of her with, like, the vine tattoos on her face, which I'd always mm -hmm. been curious about, because I was like, how did we get here? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, that was a bit, that felt indulgent, didn't it? But I guess the tattoo and the idea that everything was in connection to her friend was a theme or recurring kind of motif throughout the film. Mm. So it kind of makes sense, but the, why it actually happened? Do we need an explanation? Again, I don't think so. We <laughs> didn't need an, you know, I don't need to know the genetic reasons for these things. I'm ready to accept them. <laughs> and did you like the, what did you think of the, um, the burning love scene at the end? Oh, well, I mean, I saw it coming from a mile away when they mm -hmm. did the Romeo and Juliet bit at the beginning of the film. I was like, oh, I know exactly how this movie's going to end. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a shame that she had to die. But I guess the thing is, it's it's Carrie film. And so the, the idea that she has to die feels parallel to that. Um. The very ending of the film mm -hmm. was bizarre uh, and very strange with him in university and her coming to him as a ghost and then him being traumatized. Like, that felt very silly. Um, yeah, I kind of – I was disappointed by the ending because, I mean, with Carrie White, I guess it kind of is like a tragic figure that she does die and that she was able to get her revenge and then – she succumbs to kind of her own, like her own trauma and her own power. Mm -hmm. But with Rachel, I just, it, it kind of broke my heart that that had to be the case because she didn't feel as much of a lost cause to me as Carrie. And she did have like love in her life. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It was, it was, it was sad that she had to die. Yeah. I felt like that also was something that, was trying too hard to be carried too, but the rage would have would have let Rachel live. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If this again, I I think I'd love to see like a fan edit of this film mm. that takes out any kind of of the Carrie elements. It takes out the mother bits. It takes out any of those inserts with with the original film, and it kind of plays the bro gang narrative more. And I actually think. You could get a pretty good fan edit, edit out of this existing movie. I mean, someone should do it. I would love to see it. And also, I think, you know, it's, it's, it was quite fun to rewatch it thinking and thinking more about the love story between Jesse and Rachel because it is such a classic teen movie pairing, you know, the jock and the weirdo or, you know, the, the popular the popular cheerleader and the weirdo mm -hmm. whichever um whichever combination of romance happens but that was the thing that i could completely kind of forgotten about this film i was like that actually that's working for me because there's a really cute scene where jesse stands up for to his bros for rachel and not not for her to see just for yes. them to know which yeah. i thought was there's there's like nuggets of really interesting dynamics in this film and i'm like ooh. I would love to see this film. This feels so weirdly prescient and, and kind of tapping into conversations that we're talking, things that we're talking about now, but just kind of in an uneven way. 
Yes, I agree that their relationship, again, that's why I was frustrated by him only a few scenes before having sex with that other popular girl character because it felt like it was so at odds with who he was as a person and a character and how their his his and Rachel's relationship developed and it kind of lessened that for me but I I loved the little character scenes with them in the car and at the diner and he helps her when her dog gets run over Mm -hmm. those were great character moments and they spent enough time in the film developing the believability of their relationship Mm -hmm. which you know you don't get enough time for that with say her best friend at the beginning because she's really only in one scene where they interact Mm -hmm. and so i i appreciated that that relationship felt real is this, is this a film, I mean, I think that perhaps people who are listening to this and haven't seen it, it's like, do you think this is a film worth worth watching? That's why I mentioned this fan edit. Somebody's mm. need, somebody needs to take one for the team and make this fan edit because I think it would be more watchable then. <laughs> um, I think that it is not as bad as the reputation that precedes it because there's a lot of it's it's worth watching for the oddity of it all. It's it's worth watching because it's trying to do so many things and the uneven execution of it is interesting at the very least. Mm-hmm. I know we haven't really talked about some of the other stylistic choices within the film but there's a lot of like use of black and white in it, which oh, feels very random. I, I I was not buying it. At first, I was kind of confused by it because we see the black and white at the very beginning of the film. And I almost thought it was like a POV of like an entity or something. Mm-hmm. And then I, I realized that wasn't the case. It was more just to highlight moments of great intensity when she's using her powers or moments of distress and... Yeah, moments of emotional intensity for the character, but it felt strange. I also think the musical soundtrack for this film is all over the place. <laughs> cool. And well, it's, you know, I thought I thought when we started the film I was like, I know what this is going to be. This is going to be like, you know, grungy 90s garage music, rock music. And there is some of that, but then actually there's like, like not Frank Sinatra, but like crooners music a couple of times in the film. There's like ska music in the film. It's, again, tonally very uneven in the music choice. So it, I feel like if this doesn't sell somebody to watch it, like you need to watch it to kind of understand just how bizarre it is. Mm-hmm. So come come to the Rage Carry 2 for the um, surprisingly empathetic plot about 1990s high school rape culture. And don't leave because of the weird and even stylistic choices, including random black and white shots, inserts of Brian De Palma's carry, and oddball music choices. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say... It's worth it's worth a uh, wasting a Friday night on. <laughs> the operative word being wasting. I mean, you know, I I think 
the thing is, I will think about this. Like, I will remember this film. Like, it's mm-hmm. not like there's enough teen horror films out there. Like, I'm picking one out of the hat here. But, like, Urban Legend to me feels very forgettable because it's, mm-hmm. like, such a uh, a copycat of so many other things. But this film is so ambitious that it's, like, shooting for the moon and falling among the stars. You mm-hmm. know, it's mm-hmm. – and it's it's memorable in all of these little oddities. And I I don't know. I I found myself having an affection for it by the end. Mm-hmm. I think if you go in expecting Brian De Palma's film, you're going to be very sorely disappointed, and I don't think that they would be a good double bill. I think that they would don't work side by side. But if you watch this with maybe like The Craft, mm-hmm. you might have a good time. Oh, now that is a pairing, actually. Angry old goth girls of the nineties. Yeah. Oh, Ali, thank you so much for coming on to talk about these two sequels to iconic teen slashers from the seventies with me. Um, it's been a real pleasure. And where can people find more of your work online? Yeah, so I am not online as myself. Really, I have a very silly hobby where I collect VHS tapes and the stranger the better. And I uh, curate that collection on Instagram. So it's the underscore VHS underscore graveyard. And I recently bought a CRT TV, an old fashioned CRT, and we've been watching the tapes on it and it is oh perfection. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.